Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. Hey, it's Marita here. I just want to let you know that this episode's been a bit of a tough one, especially if you've been closely impacted by COVID. Hilton's interview with Professor Dimity Pond is fantastic and really important, but I've got to say listening to it today really brought back some tough memories of dealing with COVID in Melbourne over these past couple of years. So listen if you're feeling up for it, but also just be mindful that it could be a little bit upsetting. We really definitely need to look at what we've missed as people come out of lockdown and we start to pick up on their physical and mental health issues. And I'm sure we're missing a lot of mental health issues, including cognitive impairment and depression. Hi, it's Hilton Coppy here, and this is Dementia in Practice, the podcast made by GPs for GPs and other health professionals who are looking to learn more about dementia. Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are with me once again. Hi, Marita and Steph. <laughs> Hi, Hilton. Hello. Great to have you back with us again. We've talked a bit in previous episodes of the podcast about how social isolation can impact on a person's symptoms of dementia. Yeah, and we've also talked quite a lot about the relationship between dementia and depression. Look, unfortunately, during the COVID-19 pandemic, aged care facilities have had to close to visitors and people living in the community have also had to isolate themselves to be protected from COVID-19. But how has that impacted on their symptoms of dementia? I've also been thinking about this for the last couple of years and listened to another couple of podcasts who talked a bit about how the impact of social isolation can really have a significant change in someone's cognitive function. But Hilton, I think you've been speaking to one of our colleagues from Dementia Training Australia, Professor Dimity Pond, who's going to talk a bit more about what she's discovered in relation to COVID-19 and the symptoms of dementia. Yeah, that's right, Steph. Dimity is also Professor of General Practice at the University of Newcastle, and she's done a lot of research into dementia and also um, mental health in primary care. Okay, let's, let's have a listen. The social connectedness, the talking face-to-face, the actual physical contact with someone is very good for our feeling of well-being. And as I'm sure you've touched on many times, Hilton, uh, what's good for our bodies is also good for our brain. They are intimately connected, Hilton. So if our brain is functioning well, it will affect our body. And if we're happy and well-connected, that will improve our brain functioning. Social connectedness in itself has been shown to reduce the likelihood of developing dementia earlier. Uh, it might not be able to stop it altogether, but it is it is very good preventive kind of activity for dementia. Separate from that, but of course connected, is the idea that people who are socially isolated become depressed. And with depression, you get brain fog. And one in five of us have had serious depression in our lives, but many of us have had bad days. And you know that it's hard to think when you're depressed. 
So if we get a whole lot of people in lockdown, in COVID, uh, who aren't making connections with people and who are therefore slowed down mentally, that is a risk factor for dementia. Do you think that perhaps uh, part of the way that depression may contribute towards declining cognitive functioning could be through a person with depression withdrawing from social contact? Do you think that's part of the cognitive in- impact of depression? I think it is. I'm sure it is. But in fact, the clever researchers who are really good with numbers have done all sorts of uh, regression techniques and so on and showed that social isolation and depression are two independent risk factors. Um, but I, I'm sure they're interconnected in many ways. And yeah, how you feel when you're socially isolated and then how you withdraw. We were discussing earlier how now that lockdown's lifted in Sydney and in Melbourne, do we really want to go out into the wide world? Maybe we'll just stay in our little cave for a bit longer. And that's not good for us. So the social interaction does help both people to feel good and also helps their brain functioning through pathways that are separate just to the general well-being feeling. I think that's true. And then if you think about it for people who already have established dementia, such as people who are, say, living in a nursing home in residential aged care and perhaps don't fully understand why all of a sudden no one is visiting them, then you add another whole kind of level of um, angst and potential for depression to those people. What do you see have been the impact of the restrictions as a result of COVID on on the people living in residential aged care? Well, very early on, I looked at doing a geriatric depression scale as well as the mini mental state, people in, uh, in residential aged care. I also did a, a life stresses questionnaire with these people. And I did a physical examination and I did, you know, a a medical exam. And I I started the idea that people who are very sick and frail in residential aged care would be much more likely to be depressed because of being sick and frail. But what I found uh, was that actually being sick and frail, yes, it contributes to depression, but what mainly contributed to those people who were depressed, feeling depressed, was family issues. If they had lost contact with a member of the family, if someone in the family was divorced and they were no longer seeing grandkids or or their their son-in-law or daughter-in-law, then they became significantly depressed. And even in the relatively small numbers that I had in that study, the social connectedness came up as the most significant thing associated with depression. And this is exactly what people are missing out on in residential aged care in COVID, that social connectedness. And I know the staff do the best they possibly can. And I I have patients who are uh, working in residential aged care whose heart absolutely bleeds for people. And they say, you know, I'm standing there with my mask on and they can't see my mouth, they can't they can't hear what I'm saying to them properly. They can't lip read because they can't see my mouth. And I've got gloves on. 
And all I can do is hold their hand. And it actually, it's very, very hard on the staff as well because they know how much people are suffering. What about for someone who's uh, still living at home and perhaps in the early stages of uh, dementia, what role does social interaction have in helping maintain their cognitive functioning? Yes, other people who are perhaps have early dementia living in the community really struggle. I mean, they struggle with the everyday things that usually they can get their 17-year-old grandson to come over and fix the TV or the you know, the phone, show them how to get it to work again. And they don't have that help. Uh, They might have someone who pops in under a a care package, but that's um, fairly few and far between in in lockdown. And uh, those people aren't uh, meant to be helping with the mobile phone. They're meant to be doing a bit of house cleaning. So there's all sorts of practical issues when you've got dementia and your function is impaired. And I believe that they have trouble then with their cooking. And I have, I really do like doing home visits on my community patients who have early dementia because, uh, you know, it's so interesting to see they've been losing weight. Just have a little look in the fridge and there's some salad. Oh, yes, a, a packet of salad. That, that'll last me for two lunch times. And I'm thinking... It's not much in that salad of any protein. And older people need protein. Do you get protein? Oh, I have some toast at breakfast. Uh, they don't get their regular weekly visit to the club with their relatives to have some something to eat. So they're suffering physically. And we don't see them as GPs because they don't want to come to us and we don't particularly want them sitting in our waiting room or even outside because we're worried about them getting COVID. And so then we're not checking on their physical health parameters as well as we probably should. And they miss the social contact with us. How many people have told GPs who are listening here, how many people have told them that, you know, you're you're the only person I've talked to this week or you're one of my only friends, you know, and not to be able to talk to us or only to have a phone call which you can't hear very well, let alone a video call if you can't make it FaceTime work can't get the mobile phone to work at all, it's not the same. It's not the same as even coming and sitting with us, let alone having lunch at the club with their niece or someone like that. What do you actually think are the effects of having to do, for a GP, having to do telehealth or remote health when caring for people with dementia? What's Apart from the social connectedness, what, what other things are lost through uh, telehealth? Yeah, that's such an interesting question, isn't it, Milton? And I think we'll really, I know there are some studies looking at that at the moment, and we really definitely need to look at what we've missed as people come out of lockdown and we start to pick up on their physical and mental health issues. And I'm sure we're missing a lot of mental health issues, uh, including cognitive impairment and depression, And we're also missing physical health issues. So we're not checking on people's medications. We tend to be reactive in general practice. And if we're not seeing people often, we're not noticing that they haven't taken their cholesterol-lowering tablets and they're, they're well out of those. And we may not be noticing 
that they haven't had a, a care plan done for more than a year now and they probably haven't been seeing the podiatrist or the physio or whoever they see under the care plan as well. And uh, because of being in lockdown and because then of having the care plan run out, so they're missing out on their allied health input as well. And all of that's part of their social network and it's part of what keeps people happy and socially connected and not depressed and feeling as though they're part of the community. So we've got a lot of work to do to catch up on what what people have missed out on. And I would suggest that listeners are really proactive in checking what people have actually been doing in lockdown. And I suspect many of them have been doing absolutely nothing in terms of their health care, especially their allied health care. GPs are going to have a very important role as we're moving from lockdowns to becoming more, uh, well, less socially isolated. What do, you, what do you see as the role for GPs as we move forward over the coming months and year or so? I think that's very true, Hilton. I think that we GPs need to think very carefully through what we can do to make up for the deficits that people have had in care um, over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, we will also, of course, be having outbreaks from time to time as well, so we'll be managing that as well. I actually think that we need to uh, make sure that people have had their routine preventive health measures. That would include uh, immunisations for things like pneumonia, you know, and their uh, uh, zoster immunisation which many people have missed out on. And it would also mean going over them with a stethoscope and uh, doing the bloods that may not have been done since 2019. I have so many patients in that category. And uh, just checking on the parameters that were maybe a little out of whack and maybe worse now, whether it's renal function or blood sugar levels, hemoglobin A1C or cholesterol. And then they need skin checks uh, and they need psychological health checking too. And then they might need their allied health uh, referrals all renewed. And for those aged 75 and over, many of them have missed out on their 75 plus health assessment. And there's a role for the practice nurse in that as well, I think. Well, wow, there was so much in that uh, little conversation with Dimity there, food for thought for those of us working in general practice. What have you seen in your clinical practice have been the impact of COVID on people, on people's cognition and also people living with dementia? Steph, maybe you might like to start off. I think um, one of the biggest things I've noticed is how it how COVID has kind of changed people's behaviour, whether they have living with cognitive impairment or not. So people have become very fearful of going out to you know, social gatherings or just to the shops. And as Dimity mentioned, you know, even coming to the GP is sometimes part of people's social connection to the world. And certainly I can think of a couple of people that I know who are no longer visiting with grandchildren because they're worried about the, you know, the possibility. And certainly when COVID was at its peak here in Adelaide, that's what people were worried about. They didn't want to see their grandchildren, so they would just wave at them through the window. And that has a massive impact on, you know, people's connection with their families. And even though we then had a period of time where there wasn't any COVID in the community, that pattern of behaviour kind of continued and 
that has an ongoing impact on how happy you are and how you engage with society. I know from a personal perspective, my dad, who's in the UK, has really limited what he does. You know, he used to go to the theatre and really enjoy lots of activities. And now he basically walks the dog and goes to the shops and tries to have minimal contact with people. And that that's two years down the line. And once you've started that kind of behaviour, it's really hard to go back into integrating with society. Yeah, it's interesting hearing that, Steph. When think back to our previous conversations where we've talked about brain health, uh, certainly limiting those things in the way that your father has or is doing may have some impact on his brain health as, as time moves forward. What about for you, Marita? You've lived in the epicentre of lockdowns of the world for the last couple of years. What have you noticed um, working in Melbourne? It's actually just brought, um, you know, quite a lot of deep feelings thinking about the losses that we've experienced. Um, one of my colleagues' fathers died in a nursing home in the first wave and he died alone. He had dementia and and contracted COVID and had to die alone. And and my best friend's mate and my best friend's um, husband, he's died of dementia during lockdown. One of my other colleagues has, has at times been told she couldn't visit her parents despite being double vaccinated because she works as a doctor and they felt the risk was too high for her to come in to the nursing home and just the families who have just been so distressed. Yeah. Thanks for being so honest with your feelings and emotions, Marita, around this because it's been extraordinarily difficult for everyone in the community. And I did have in mind this question about the impact of social distancing on health practitioners. You know, what what has that been like for us as a group and for us individually? Maybe while you get your breath, Marita, Steph, what, what's been the impact yeah. for you of having to wear a mask and PPE and be uh, socially distant from your patients who like we go into general practice to be close to people and to help people but we haven't been able to do that in quite the same way mm. how's that affected you I think the hard well there's lots of points really one of the things I've noticed is how wearing a mask although it's just covering your mouth um, actually we get so many cues from the mouth you know most of us probably lip read to a certain extent and our expressions come from our whole face so you you lose so much just from wearing a mask and then add into that people who are experiencing distress and trauma perhaps from you know bereavement or something like that and you I would normally hold out my hand, touch someone on the shoulder, you know, have some personal contact with with the person in front of me if it if it was necessary. Well, now you've got that barrier. There's a line on the floor. You have to be distanced from that person. You can't offer that other support that you would normally offer. And that's really, you know, it feels really harsh as the practitioner that, that you're missing out on that. And then talking to people on the phone, I find one of the hardest things I've found in the last, you know, um, two years is dealing with mental health um, over the phone, because a lot of people find that very difficult to express themselves on the telephone. And and if you can't see somebody, you can't read what's going on. So it's really hard to 
understand, you know, what people are going through when you just got the phone. And I also noticed that so many of my, you know, regular clients just disappeared for like a really long time. I didn't see them for a really long time. And then they suddenly started coming back, um, but they hadn't come for their routine health checks as they normally would because they were scared of coming to the doctors and scared of interacting with us because we might increase their risk of of catching COVID. So there's so many impacts for everybody, including us as health practitioners and, and the people that we care for. And if we move just beyond some of the, uh, like they're almost like intellectual or cognitive aspects of the social isolation, Steph, how's that actually felt for you as a human being? What's that, what impact has that had on you personally? I guess I think I, I found it very mentally overwhelming and draining because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of limitations on our movement. Like, for example, I can't go back to the UK. I still can't go back to the UK, really, um, until the borders open. So having that awareness of what's going on in the world and what's going on right in front of me, but knowing if something awful happened to my family, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to get there. That's quite traumatic, living with that. And then, and also the uncertainty of what's going on in in the you know wider world and thinking this is just never going to end um i think living with that uncertainty and anxiety is quite hard and you certainly see or i've seen or felt a sense of anxiety amongst the population and having to talk to people about that and talking now talking a lot about vaccination and you know what's going to happen when the borders open and when you're dealing with your own personal feelings about it and also all of the people that you see day to day their personal feelings about it it's quite hard to maintain maintain sort of clarity of thought sometimes one of the things we're recording this podcast in uh Four different states, really. Kim, our producers in Queensland. I'm in New South Wales. Steph, you're in South Australia. And Marita, you're in Victoria. So uh, we can't reach across. I can't reach across the table, Marita, or I can't even see you now. So um, just wondering what you're thinking as the conversations continued. Yeah, I'm thinking, I guess, you know, one of the, the good things is that certainly having been in both first and second waves in in the northern corridors of Melbourne to have seen the great impact that vaccination has had. And I think, you know, some of that fear of passing infection on to our elderly or our young has been, um, you know, lessened a bit once we've been able to get two vaccines in and feel that, you know, there is some hope now. And as Steph said, you know, people are starting to come back and there's a little bit more confidence now that we can get back on with the the business of general practice, albeit very changed. It's a little certainly a little bit more liberating now. And I guess for all the difficulties that we've faced with telehealth and all the limitations that we've talked about, I also wonder if telehealth is going to improve services, particularly for people living with dementia as as we move forward, because we are actually seeing there is a lot that we can do as GPs. It's different, but there's still a lot of um, potential capacity there. So I think whilst there's been a lot of difficulty, there's certainly some lessons that we've all learned. 
Just before we bring Dimity back in, Marita, I might ask you, I know you work in, mm -hmm. a, in a busy practice in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. What are you and your colleagues mm -hmm. doing to plan for caring for people with dementia or, or helping people with cognitive impairment as Victoria moves out of lockdown? Uh, I think that that's a very good question and perhaps a question I need to take back to the practice. At the moment, we're just catching breath and thinking how we're going to how we're going to move forward and what it's going to look like in terms of you know now that Victoria's opening up and and how we manage manage the practice moving forward but i guess it's one of those things that that is going to be on the the agenda we're certainly talking in our wider practice so i belong to a group of seven practices and 50% of our business is actually aged care so we are certainly talking about in general ways we're going to move forward to care for people living with dementia. We did an audit not long ago to look at the number of patients in our practice over the age of 65 and the number that have a diagnosis of dementia or cognitive impairment or memory problems. And we've certainly recognised that we are, we are falling, you know, we have a much lower rate than what we should have. Um, and so that's certainly something that's on our agenda to, to move forward as we know it's, you know, it's an increasing problem. All right. Well, Dimity did speak uh, towards the end there of listing um, all the jobs that we're going to have to do in general practice. While we take a breath and gird our loins for uh, doing all that work, why don't we have a listen to what else she had to say? There has been some reports about COVID infection actually causing cognitive impairment or accelerating cognitive decline. What awareness do you have of that? Yes, I've seen some reports of this in the context of long COVID. Of course, our colleagues in the UK and Europe are familiar with long COVID, which is a post-COVID syndrome, a post-viral syndrome, because they've been living with huge outbreaks uh, from last year. But, uh, in fact, around about 50% of people do get uh, symptoms, certainly for three months, some six months, some longer, that include brain fog. They might also include feeling very tired and short of breath, aches and pains, headaches. Different people have different constellations of symptoms. And there's now a literature on it. I was looking at a, a literature from the States with around a quarter of a million people that they've looked at. And, and those were the, the figures. Around 50% of people were, were getting symptoms that included brain fog for three to six months and in some cases longer. And, in fact, that will show up on a cognitive function test, one of the tests that we might do. And it might be worth thinking about that in your patients with COVID or who've had COVID, who are not doing as well as uh, they would hope and you would hope. So you can do a mini mental state or uh, a mocker questionnaire, or you can even use the TICS, which is the telephone interview for cognitive state that you can do over the telephone. And they had reports from all of those showing that people suffering from this post-COVID, long COVID syndrome did have cognitive impairment. So, of course, the $100,000 question or $100 million question is how long this will last for. And, of course, we don't know because we haven't 
had COVID around for long enough to know, but based on post-viral syndromes from other diseases such as glandular fever, some people will suffer from symptoms for quite extended periods that may be more than a year. Do you think that might be a case of uh, like it being a risk factor, an additive risk factor for people who already have a predisposition towards dementia and some of those, that brain fog or that mild cognitive impairment for a percentage of people will go on to develop into an actual dementia? That makes a lot of sense to me, Hilton. Uh, If someone's teetering on the brink of, uh, you know, they've lost some of their brain function but are still fine and then they get COVID, it makes sense to me that they're likely to have more impaired cognition after that than a person who was cognitively completely healthy uh, before they got COVID. And so we need to watch out for that, don't we, Hilton? That puts in mind that for me that we need to take extra care with those patients. So people who perhaps have already got reduced cognitive reserve, yeah, add the brain fog of the actual infection, add in the social isolation from the lockdown restrictions, add in uh, some low mood or anxiety that might come as a result of all of those things. And uh, I don't want to sound too gloomy, but it sounds a bit like a perfect storm. Yes, I agree with you. The good news is that the things that um, in general practice that we're very good at doing, which is supporting social engagement, encouraging people to be physically active, eat well, exercise, will uh, help to mitigate against all of those uh, risk factors for cognitive impairment. I think that's true. And in the UK, they're setting up uh, long COVID clinics for people where they get exercise uh, some psychological counselling, social work. They get uh, some social prescribing where they get linked into social activities with other people. Uh, And and in fact, I believe I've heard rumours that some of the state health departments are looking at setting those up uh, in Australia as well in, in the hospital system. And of course, there are rehab clinics in the community that we could refer people to. Or we could put together those programs ourselves if if we have the resources in our community to refer people to. It's always such a joy to hear Dimity talk about these issues, isn't it? She's got a wealth of knowledge and I feel like she really has given us a, a good way to move forward, Hilton. Yeah, definitely. Um, she spoke about the long COVID clinics that are being set up in the UK. Steph, I know you've been reading some research recently about two things. Uh, One was the cognitive impairment that occurs in people who've had COVID but not long COVID. And the other concept was this one of uh, cognitive rehabilitation after COVID. Can you talk to us a little bit about the research you've been reading about the cognitive impairment that's occurred for people post-COVID who who may not have long COVID? Yeah, so, um, well, the first thing I thought I'd mention is that um, if we look back to the 1918 flu pandemic, 
they found that the people who were born or uh, sort of younger people in that time had a two to three times greater chance of having Parkinson's disease. And that was due to the impact of that virus on the brain. And so it's not surprising that something like COVID-19 might also have an impact on our brains. And some of the theory behind that also comes in line with the loss of sense of smell that people experience with the disease. And, you know, if if you're getting a loss of sense of smell, then potentially that's affecting your olfactory nerve and therefore you're, you're getting some form of loss of brain function. And so I was reading a study in the the Lancet that looked at a cohort of 87,000 people between January 2020 and December 2020. And uh, not all of these people had severe COVID, you know, only a proportion of them were in hospital, many of them were at home in the community, and not all of them had long COVID. And the study had looked at their cognitive function, And they found that there was a significant um, difference between those who hadn't had COVID at all and those who had in terms of loss of cognitive function. And even when they'd, you know, accounted for all other factors in terms of, you know, age and gender and, you know, educational background. And this persisted um, even after all the symptoms of COVID had resolved. So I think you know, it's one of those things that we are needing to be alert to because there's a possibility that this is going to have long-term impact on people and we won't know what that long-term impact is um, for some time yet. Also, though, in personal experience, I have a patient in my own practice who had long COVID and she definitely describes this brain fog. So when we're thinking about rehabilitation for people who are experiencing long COVID symptoms, it may be that using some of the things that we use for dementia in terms of cognitive rehabilitation um, may well be beneficial. And that involves um, sort of person-centered approach, as we always talk about, but also helping people to, you know, focus on goals that they want to achieve and, and maximizing their ability to use their brains in different ways, which is something that we've reflected on in previous podcasts. It's not about just doing as many Sudokus as you can. It's about the variety and breadth of things that you do with your brain, um, but being able to be supported in that so that you don't sort of overwhelm yourself, because obviously the more that you use your brain, the more tired you get. So I was interested that Dimity mentioned this thing that I'd never heard of before. She called it the TICS, which I think is the telephone interview for cognitive screening. Marita, have you had any experience with using that in your practice? No, I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of it, Hilton, which is why we love Dimity so much because she knows about all this stuff. But I had a look at it and, it, yeah, it's, a, it's a, quite a good screening tool that you can use over the phone. It gives you really clear instructions on what to ask and how much you can prompt and about having someone else there and it, it has little bits like asking the person not to write down any notes at the time because that might you know impact on the on the result and it looks like a really good tool so that's certainly something moving forward that I'll look and and see if I get any opportunity to use that Uh, the only thing that's a miss of course is the wonderful clock face so you know we get so much information from that clock face and you can't you can't do that but but it does look like quite a good tool so I'd encourage anyone who has really embraced telehealth Steph you know you've started a new clinic that is just for cognitive screening and I thought that might be something that you would look at 
utilising um, as a way to reach more people. Definitely. It's got a use for rural and remote communities as well. So if you wanted mm. to see whether somebody needed further assessment, it might be a useful tool to use to judge when and how that person might need further assessment. Mm. And remember, it is a screening tool. Of course, it's not a diagnostic tool. Marita, we were talking off air about access to rehab, and I know um, Dimity spoke about community rehab, and we were talking about how it's it's so difficult to access rehab in the community. Can you talk a little, Marita, about the GP management plans that we've developed and how they might be helpful to help GPs in assisting people who've got some of the cognitive decline that may come after a COVID infection? Yeah, well, we've got the three GP management plans that are, the links will be in the, the show notes for dementia, looking at the different stages and domains. But of course, that can be adapted to any form of cognitive impairment. So I certainly think in looking at our patients who have had COVID in terms of our systems in place at work, putting some reminders in to have a think about um, screening for cognition and talking to them about about how they're going and then perhaps looking at those plans to see how you could utilise a GP management plan to access some of the allied health workers, um, particularly whether that could be a psychologist who has an interest in the area. Neuropsychologists are very hard to get hold of. It might be looking at some social workers, OTs, physios, ways that we can put a little package together to help people regain both physical strength, but also, you know, build up their cognitive reserve again. And I guess the key thing about the idea of uh, the GP management plans is that the GP doesn't have to do all of that, that there is a team out there that can help. Yeah, for sure. I also worry about the impact that people who are living with cognitive impairment on their own, who perhaps aren't very good at accessing healthcare and maybe COVID has made that even more challenging for them, may not be getting their COVID vaccines. And I really worry about kind of this missing, or even people who are housebound, you know, I've, I've recently you know, found out that there is a, a way of getting people who are housebound vaccinated, but it hasn't been widely publicised. So I think that's another inequality that it's all very well, you know, we can just rock up to our local vaccine centre, but that might not be something that either people who feel, who are older, feel more vulnerable and maybe don't want to go, or also don't have the means, or maybe their child is in another state, or they don't have the facility to go. And so that puts them at increased risk of actually getting COVID. Yeah, so the very people who in a way most need the vaccine may be difficult for them to access it. Yeah, So that's a wrap from us on this season of Dementia in Practice. But the exciting news is we will be back. Yes, we will be back. So this exciting little journey into podcasting has been an actual success. So thank you to all our listeners who have given us such wonderful feedback in the last few months. And um, as you can see, there's just so much more to discuss. So much more to discuss. So please make sure you keep that great feedback coming by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or just letting your friends and colleagues know about Dementia in Practice. And we'll be back next year. In the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au, or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook, 
or at DementiaTrainAU on Twitter. Dementia in Practice would not have been possible without the support from Margaret Wimbolt, Rebecca Brown and Nick Ryan. Thanks also to our producer Kim Lester and to Derek Myers at Castaway Studios. Thank you all for listening and see you next year. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or a carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500, or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.